The Spectator combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, and get a £20 Amazon gift voucher absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk slash summer. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots. I'm James Heal and I'm joined today by Kate Andrews and Katie Balls. Now, Kate, today the ONS figures are out. Talking about wage increases, what do they say? So I think the big headline from the update today is that Brits are experiencing a small yet meaningful pay increase on average. Not everybody, but regular pay is up by 7.8%. That excludes bonuses. So I think it's slightly fairer measure to use. Whereas uh, employees' average total pay, which includes bonuses, is up by 8.5%. That number is higher predominantly because of the one-off bonuses that were given to NHS workers and civil service workers over the summer that isn't going to be repeated. Now, this is key because that regular pay figure repeats what we saw last month as well and would suggest that on average, Brits are now getting very marginal pay raise because that wage increase is now above the rate of inflation. We had well over a year in which it wasn't and Brits were experiencing a real terms pay cut. So I think that, you know, on the face of it, this is good news. Not everybody agrees. The Bank of England has been warning about a wage price spiral for a while, in which they essentially warn that you could see a secondary spike in inflation figures and prices going up because wages are going up. I think there's a lot of dispute over this theory. A lot of people don't agree with it. They continue to say, no, money supply is the real issue here. It might look like wages are causing this, but it's not. It's all that money you pumped into the economy. But regardless, it's the Bank of England that gets to set interest rates, and we will see them vote again next week. There's some speculation now as to whether or not they'll pause rate rises. I think in general markets are expecting at least one more, but whether or not that comes next week is more of a question mark, especially because the governor of the Bank of England, Andrew Bailey, did suggest last week to the Treasury Select Committee that he doesn't see it so necessary anymore to keep raising rates. He'll be looking at the data, but we know he's looking at this labor market data out today. So, you know, it, it would sort of tip the scales in favor, perhaps, of another 0.5% interest rate hike. However, I don't think that's by any means certain. And Katie, what does all this mean for the government's triple lock promise on pensions? So this has been a subject of speculation for a few days now after Rishi Sunak on his trip back from India uh, was asked about it by the travelling press pack. And he ultimately suggested that he could not commit there and then to the pensions triple lock, making it into the Tory manifesto. But to be fair to him, the answer he gave was, you know, I'm not going to get into talking about what's in a manifesto right now. It's a long-standing Tory policy, but we're not going to pre-decide the manifesto. Which in a way is a perfect politician's answer because you can read it two ways. So, so one interpretation is Rishi Sunak and his team do not want to give an answer to that and therefore find themselves in a trap by which uh, they say something like, well, that's, you know, long-standing policy we plan to keep. And then are asked about policies forevermore and if they say well wait and see will be taken as a sign it's being dropped so that's why you just have a holding line on it the second is that it's very expensive uh the reasons kate just hinted at um the impact it's going to have on the state pension and so forth and also is it really fair at a time when you think about all the issues of intergenerational unfairness the triple lock has become a very costly policy um at a time when actually working age people are really struggling for various reasons so is he leaving 
himself the space in a time where there's not that much money to go around in terms of new money to change it or to change the deal. And I think what is probably um, raised uh, questions more today is the fact that William Hague's got a column in the Times um, arguing that it's time to axe a triple lock. Now, he's not calling for it to go tomorrow, even really immediately after an election. He has several ideas because it is politically explosive, talks about how you could announce it's going to go in XX many years' time, so there's a build-up. Also, you could um, agree to review with the other parties, but it says the only way it's going to work if you don't try and score points from one another. Now, the reason I think this is particularly interesting is William Hague is very close to Rishi Sunak. He has often given the current Prime Minister advice. Members of Rishi Sunak's team know William Hague very well. And therefore, you have a situation by which, uh, you know, lots of people are saying, well, is this kite flying, preparing the groundwork for something Rishi Sunak might want to do a little bit further down the line. Now, I think The official word is effectively nothing has been decided because if there were to be a decision on this, it would be made much closer to the election. There's lots of calculations that have to be taken into account. But I do think it's worth thinking about what's going to be one of the big themes for Rishi Sunak at the Tory party conference, which is the fact that I think they want to pitch himself as that prime minister who is willing to take tough decisions and almost separate him from some of the, not just as a current opponent, but also predecessors who are trying to, you know, quick political solution saying, you know, don't believe people who say this can just all be fixed easily. Um, Now, could the triple lock, I mean, the triple, axing or changing the triple lock would certainly fit into that narrative of hard medicine. It also would be pretty bold when you think about probably the most reliable Tory voter there is in the current state of the polls. So it might still be a bridge too far. And Kate, Katie talks there about trade-offs. Do you think we've been the Conservative Party have been honest enough about trade-offs in recent years. Uh, I note, for instance, you wrote a blog yesterday about uh, this trust and the trustonomics calculations. Does Rishi Junak now therefore think that, let's just be honest, frankly, that we can't promise you know, jam today, jam tomorrow, uh, cakeism, as Boris Johnson put it, uh, and then actually there's possibly some sense and voters will appreciate if you're honest about the trade-offs involved in politics? Well, that was the calculation that Rishi Sunak made in last year's leadership race, and the voters did not reward him. He did not win the leadership election when he was very honest about the fact that there wasn't a lot more money to spend. And I think the past few years, certainly if we're including the COVID years, but even after that, have certainly not been an exercise in fiscal discipline and having honest conversations with the public. I mean, so much day-to-day spending on things not related to the pandemic were ramped up during COVID because governments world over just had permission to splash as much cash as they like. But the government is now tied into those commitments, which which makes things far more expensive and much more difficult. One of the challenges here is that the government is going to be asked questions about operating benefits alongside sticking to the triple lock. And it's difficult to see how you could decide, for example, not to operate benefits, but to stick with the triple lock. It almost feels like these things go together. And to Katie's point, the year before an election, the idea that you're going to go after the income of pensioners as the Tory party doesn't feel quite right from an electoral perspective. That being said, The Spectator reported years ago when Rishi Sunak was still chancellor that he was looking at the triple lock. He actually saw COVID, especially in 2020, as the opportunity to make the case that young people have sacrificed so much, and willingly so, this is the time to address some of those intergenerational unfairness points. And it was thought that Boris Johnson was the person who who 
ultimately did not want to go through with changing the triple lock. He, you know, he didn't like to disappoint. But at the time, there there was some support for the idea of changing the triple lock. It is widely acknowledged how expensive it is, and that our generation probably isn't going to see it. And so, at some point, something's got to change. But we've been talking a lot about short termism recently as well. What government really wants to talk about this a year out from an election? Katie, uh, Mel Stride told World at One today that you know, long term, perhaps. The triple log is unsustainable. The other side of a general election, who knows? Do you think that's where most Tory MPs are? Yeah, I mean, I think it's quite clear nothing's happening before the general election on this. And again, you look, for example, at something Rupert Harrison said today, obviously former advisor to George Osborne, now a Tory candidate, saying actually need to have this cross-party commission. And you start to see where this would land. I think actually... What's quite interesting is where is Labour on this? I remember speaking to someone in the Shadow Treasury a little while ago and the triple lock came up and they said, you know, well, we want to see what the Tories do on it, which you could read again a few ways. What a fun podcast. (laughs) But but, uh, I took it to mean my own analysis was effectively that if the Tories were to ditch it, perhaps Labour would get behind that because they'd be very aware that if they do look likely to enter government anyway, that it's going to really restrain and cost if you're in government. But of course, it also could have meant if they, you know, if they try and ditch it, we'll get those votes from the pensioners by committing. But Angela Rayner today, speaking at the TUC, you know, conference would not say that they would keep the triple lock. So I think that's one to watch from that point. Could you actually end up in a situation where the two major parties decide not to turn it into political football. I think previous experience would say that's unlikely, <laughs> but that currently the soundings, and I think there is a plausible reason why it's in both their interests to reform the triple lock, is just political reality. As for Tory MPs, I, I do think that where Rishi Sunak to try and do something on this, he probably would face some resistance, but again, it comes to how you finesse it and how you time it. I don't think it's impossible, it's something he he could get through, but clearly, again, you get back to the Tory core voter base and it, and it gets quite complicated. Just very quickly on, on that point about an unspoken consensus, if we were to agree on anything, you know, if the parties were to decide that, that something were quite well established, is the fact that the triple lock isn't working as it exists. It had to be suspended at one point during COVID because the increase to the state pension was going to reflect an average wage boost that was only happening because young people were losing their jobs. You know, that technicality was not going to fly. Um, This time around, we could be looking at an 8.5% increase because employees' average total pay has gone up. And as I said at the start of the podcast, a lot of that is because the three-month period that determines what the state pension goes up by will include those NHS bonuses. Not obvious that that should be a factor. So the way it's working now, even if you were to stick to something that looks like the triple lock, does fundamentally have to change. Thank you, Katie. Thank you, Kate. And thank you very much for listening to Coffee House Shots.